There'll be no more kneeling, no more bowing, no more kneeling after a while, no more weeping, no more crying, no more weeping after a while. And before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to be my Lord and to go home to be with my Lord and be free. It is my very, very, very special pleasure to introduce our rapporteur today, uh, Professor Charles H. Long. Uh, Dr. Long has been a mentor for me and a very, very dear friend, and I miss him terribly. And you should have seen me at the Best Western Hotel the other day when I saw him the other night. I ran like a little kid to greet him. Uh, anyway. Charles H. Long was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. He attended the public school system of Little Rock to Dunbar Junior College. I had too many pieces of paper here. Give me one little second. For 40 years, Professor Charles Long has been at the forefront of research and teaching in the history of religion what we call in the field, religion Wissenschaft. There's no doubt that Charles Long is and has been recognized to be one of the most prominent historian of religions in the world. He was present at the creation, that is when the academic study of religion in its current form was conceived and established. Indeed, he was one of the field's formative theoreticians, working side by side with Mircea Iliad at the University of Chicago. He was also here to the legacy of Joachim Watch. In short, Charles Long is one of the most important, most highly respected, and best known scholar teacher of religious studies, whether this assessment be rendered in national or international terms. When the history of the formation of religious studies as an intellectual discipline is written, Charles Long will certainly have a prominent place. Charles Long was one of the founding editors of the History of Religions Journal, one of the most important journals in the field. He was a founder of the prestigious American Society for the Study of Religion. He has been president of the American Academy of Religion and the founder of an organization for the Society for the Study of Black Religion. He has extraordinary visibility in the field. He has held two named chairs, the William Rand Cannon Jr. Chair at the University of North Carolina and the Janet K. Watson Chair at Syracuse University. He has been a visiting professor at 11 universities in the United States, including Xavier, Princeton, 
the University of Tennessee, the University of Pittsburgh, the University of South Carolina, Syracuse University, the University of Michigan. Outside the United States, he has taught at the University of Queensland, Tuskaba University in Japan, and Cape Town University in South Africa. Professor Long has lectured at the most major university in the United States, including, among others, Harvard, Yale, UC Berkeley, UCLA, the University of Indiana, Brown, you name it. In 1991, he was given the University of Chicago Alumni Distinguished Service Professional Award. He was director of the Center for Black Studies here and professor of the history of religion uh, from 1991 until he retired in 1996. It would not be incorrect to suggest that all his major publication and edited books have set the tone for much of the history of religions. Here we underscore Alpha, the myth of creation, first published in 1963 and republished in a third printing in 1983. It remains, it has remains, one of the most important studies of creation of myth in the history of religions. And also his, another of his books, Significations, Signs, Symbol, and Images in the Interpretation of Religion, which has drawn universal acclaim in its formulation of the problem of religion in modernity. His major articles have all addressed central, central questions in the history of religions and have become classic statements on a number of issues in the field. Charles Long has a unique perspective on which to speak of the general meaning of religion in history and culture, and specifically about African religions in Africa and in the Atlantic world. He was the first person who told us about this Middle Passage project in 1992 and attempted the, to, to develop a, a proposal at the Center for Black Studies at that time called Route of the Slaves. Dr. Long has been involved in the training of three generations of scholars in religions and in African American studies. He's a monument in religion and in African-American studies. He has received all accolades in the academy. For example, a few years ago, Princeton University's held a two-day symposium in his honor. The symposium was entitled The Works of Charles Long. Today, we honor and simply welcome home our very own Dr. Charles H. Law. Please help me welcome him. After Claudine's introduction, I felt like saying, who is that guy? Uh, well, I am so grateful to be here. It's the first time I've been back in Santa Barbara or at the university uh, since I retired in 1996. And it's very good to come back for the first time under these auspices. 
very good to meet uh, my old friends and a number of new friends and colleagues on this occasion. Um, I also should mention that there are other people who have been in, tied up with the center also. There's Gerald Horn. He was acting director of the center when I got here. So uh, it's just a sort of old reunion thing going on here. And um, the conference itself uh, has been very important for me uh, because it made very clear the uh, seriousness of the issue of reparations and it gave you a sense that this uh, meaning of reparations uh, had a great deal to do with both uh, our past and our future. Uh, I guess for a number of years, uh, several people have wondered uh, what happened to the civil rights movement. What's gonna, what, what are we supposed to do now? Uh, can't we start up something else, uh, something of that sort? In a sense, I see uh, this uh, notion or going back to look at slavery again as it relates both uh, to the issue of knowledge and also to the issue of action as one, uh, one very important uh, movement in that continuous thing we call in my tradition the movement. And I think this movement now is is it, it, it's, it's continuous, but it represents a certain kind of disjunctive critical hiatus from the older civil rights movement. I think the older civil rights movement uh, knew that everything was going to be difficult, but there was within it, there was within it, a certain kind of tacit trust that maybe the country in status quo could indeed uh, include everybody. That there was a big, it's a big country, and all you have to do is to say, it's all right for everybody to come in. Hmm? And I think one of the great disappointments of the civil rights movement is to see the structural difficulties of a place so constituted and so put together and having such a notion of who and what it is and was to really undertake serious, critical thought about itself and obviously difficult to take, undertake any critical change. What I see in the new meaning of looking at slavery and talking about reparations is that at least for the tradition of African Americans, it becomes clear that no movement can operate that is simply, uh, that simply understands itself as pawns of the American Constitution. That African Americans cannot do that because, uh, I'll say something about this later, they are water people. In other words, that journey across the water has not been resolved. And what needs to be thought about again 
is that on those boats coming across the water, there were Europeans and Africans on the same boat. They were on the same boat, but they were taking two different journeys. And those two journeys cannot be reconciled simply by having good thoughts and thinking in universal terms. Those two journeys must be reconciled in terms of a concrete meaning of what happened to those two groups. One of the problems, I think, of the old civil rights movement is that we thought maybe there with some, it, well, it was filled with a certain kind of misplaced affection, a misplaced affection that thinking that through enlightenment categories of universalism and abstract definitions of everybody is human, that we might realize, well, it doesn't make any difference. Everybody's human. Doesn't make any difference what your color is. Doesn't make any We're all human. Or that through some great burst of Christian charity, we might be able to know that since God loves us, we ought to love each other. But of course, that didn't happen. And so I see this new movement as going back into the water. That we have gone back into the water to reorient ourselves. Not only about the destiny and meaning of African Americans, but about the destiny and meaning of what kind of future human beings have on the face of this earth. And by going back into the water, we want to acknowledge again the peculiarity of that first journey. Uh, I, phrase, I, I use a term I call the involuntary presence because of all the people in this place called the United States, the one group that's here that didn't volunteer to come are Africans. And therefore, they have constituted an involuntary presence in the land. So when we go back into the water, we're going back into the water to reorient ourselves to a new meaning of what the globe is, what language is, what meaning is, and what it human means. So in going back into the water, we touch that continent called Africa, we touch that continent called Europe, and we touch those lands across the waters we call the Americas. And we see ourselves as having a new beginning in the constitution of the Atlantic world itself. The Atlantic world is the world of modernity. The Atlantic world is the world of mercantil mercantilism, the world of capitalism, it is the world out of which the modern empires of the world were being forged. And Africans were at the center of this. It was out of the Atlantic world that great fortunes were made in the Americas and in Europe. And a great deal of those fortunes had to do with the presence of African Americans in those waters.
And part of going back into the waters to reassess things, the question arises, how can all of those who were in the waters have equal access to the excess that was created there? And therefore, reparations raises that issue as a historical meaning. How did wealth come about in the Atlantic world? Who, who should share in that wealth? And how might that be done? Now, that's one level of it. As Bobby Hill put it, it's not just about the money. Ajo uh, Ayatora said that the last day, too. It is about the money, but it's not just about the money. It has to be about the money. The reason it has to be about the mon money is that we must rethink the meaning of ultimate values, that ultimate values are not separate from materialities, that there is no need anymore to think that we have this disjunction between matter and spiritual meanings. If anything, the people in the Atlantic world, especially those at the bottom of the boat, had to mash out a meaning of spirituality while their black bodies sweated in filth at the bottom of those boats. And they have a notion that there is an interrelationship, an inherent interrelationship between material things and spiritual matters. So therefore, it's not a binary here. It's another way of understanding the nature of the world and the nature of the human. Bobby Hill also said, when he made his first comments, he said, maybe what what we might not be dealing with a history here. We may be dealing with what he called a genealogy. And the reason I think he didn't want to call it a history is because if we use that word to talk about all that other stuff they call history, then it's a question of whether you want to use that word to talk about what you're talking about. I like this word genealogy because it has to do with old notions like families. Your family genealogy, let's trace things back. Let's see where you came from. Let's see if it makes sense. In my family, we trace things back and then we find a lot of funny kind of people. <laughs> and then there's always the question of how are they related to us or whatever. And then uh, there is this uh, wonderful formula. When you can't account for someone in my family, you simply say, they came in through Cousin York. <laughs> so there's this genealogy, and I like that genealogy because genealogies have to do with families, with intimacies. Now one of the problems we have with that whole notion of intimacies, especially as it relates to African Americans involved in the slave trade and slavery, 
Well, there were a lot of intimacies going on in slavery. But they were all intimacies that must be denied. They must be hidden. They cannot be admitted. And so therefore, as the uh, brilliant contemporary Indian scholar put it, maybe those of us who have had to undergo oppression in the modern world must realistically understand that maybe the best we can do in starting out is to understand that we and the others are intimate enemies. To be realistic, we are intimate enemies. And part of the reason we are enemies is because those intimacies have no legitimate place to be, have no genuine languages to talk about, have no creative forms to make themselves known. And part of what I think this new understanding of what we're about is, is beginning to raise again the question so that people can speak freely again, understand themselves freely again, and no longer continue the lying, the lying, the cheating, the stealing as the official language that we teach our children. So reparations has a restorative meaning. It is saying there must be a restitution. And that restitution is a restitution at several levels. It struck me that it was a strange irony that on one of the panels, one of our colleagues was named Professor America. And he said, well, I got a lot to say, but let me put it bluntly first. Whites owe black folk money. And I said, now here's Professor America, uh, African-American, and I thought of Ralph Ellison's essay, Strange Name and Complex Fate. That reparations has to do with that reconstitution. And again, the reason it has to be money. In our culture, the kind of culture that grew out of the Atlantic world, if you don't talk about it in terms of money, nobody will listen to you. They will don't think you're serious. So it has to be about money, and it's through money that this restitution is going to be made. I don't know whether you know this story. Uh, Mitch Eliade told me this. So if it's not true, he said it. He said, at one time in France, uh, there were a group of Freudian French uh, uh, psychiatrists. And they said, well, there are a number of mentally disturbed people around, and they simply don't have money to pay for 
you know, going to a psychiatrist. So we're going to do it free. And so these psychiatrists got together and they were offering their services for free. But after a year or so, they got together and they said, you know, not much is happening. And then they realized that the money was part of the treatment. That when people thought they were getting free psychiatric help, they didn't think it was real. So that, that's part of just the methodology of reality there. The other part of it is that by tracing the money, you begin an extensive historical understanding of the nature of things. It's at that place that other people who may be on the other side, may be uh, negative, may be against you, but now we have a common historical project. Trace the money. You find your records, I find mine. So one cannot say, I don't know anything about those folks. I wasn't here. I didn't know what I was talking about. Let's trace the money. Because it's not just giving the money. It's not just receiving some money. It's money as a marker. Money as a trace. Money as a methodological meaning. So first of all, what the conference did for me was to give me wonderful ways of talking about the ranges and meanings of repatriation or of what the Atlantic world could mean as a restorative context. The other side of it was the critique of the past. When you start looking at this in a very different way, For example, the paper on uh, the Constitution as a affirmative action for slave-owning society. I thought that was fascinating. Uh, because we, often we get a sense, well, the Constitution was all right, except that they just didn't apply it right. And then you learn at the Constitution's Convention, one of the main things they were concerned about, how are we going to be a revolutionary democratic society and keep slavery. Now that's where the lie starts, right there. You lie in the constituting document. And that means all your offsprings of that document are probably lies. Because if ever there was world enough and time in the modern world, to bring forth a revolutionary democratic society of Africans, Europeans, and Native Americans, we had it. 
And we just start lying right off. But in spite of that lie that is the Constitution, there was, because of the nature of human beings, there were all these mixtures and changes. And of course, since the Constitution could not speak about these, they were obscured. Now, of course, everybody jumped on poor Mr. Jefferson. Uh, they kind of wore him thin there, uh, uh, both in terms of the Constitutional Convention and also in relationship to Sally Hennings. But I have uh, my own favorite Jefferson. And this is Jefferson as it relates to uh, the Louisiana Purchase because Jefferson was our first geopolitical president. His notion was not only that the country should become a continental nation, but that it should be a nation of white people who had slaves. Now, he was not the only one who felt that. But how he got away with having such a wonderful name all these years is what gets me. I'll give you one instance. During his first term in office, that was a small problem, not a great problem. And that was, what do you, how, do you, how do you imprison federal prison, prisoners who happen to be freed blacks? Well, we had federal prisons, but you know, you can't mix these folks up. So the Secretary of Interior said, I'll, I'll look on this, I'll look into this matter. So he came back, he thought he had a wonderful plan. He said, you know, there's a little island out there in a river in what is now Ohio. And he said, you, you know, they can't swim away. You just put them out there and put them, you know, maybe put a little something for them to stay in. They grow their own food. They're out, by, out there by themselves. They can't get off the island. They grow in their own food and you only have one or two guards out there. That's a perfect solution. And Jefferson said, sounds good to me. Let me look at this. And he took the plan and he mulled it over for a week or so. And then he told his Secretary of Interior that no, the plan wouldn't work. He said, because I don't want those people, even as prisoners, to ever get a notion that they can reside in this land by themselves. Now speaking of intimacies, there's this other thing about breeding. It came up. In other words, when one looks at this breeding 
not only in the more systematic way as the other Brother Horn spoke about it, but also in terms of, of all of the slave masters who had children upon women slaves and then had no, had no qualms about selling their own children. Now all of this has to be understood and talked about. In other words, from the perspective of the creation of the Atlantic world, we began to get a new perspective on Europe and the United States. Brother Inacora's uh, uh, hard-nosed, hard historical paper, which was saying Eric Williams was right, and if anybody think he isn't, I better not run across him. I would hit them over the head with the development of the Industrial Revolution in England. Then I thought what was very, very good for me uh, was that session uh, where I, I would call it talking about processes. About all right, all right, you're going to talk about this. How do you do this? How do you do this? And again, it was very clear, number one, that uh, from that panel, uh, Dodson, Horn, uh, Ayatoro, uh, that, uh, look, don't go all woo-woo, because reparations have been going on all the time. You know, reparation for so and so then, reparation for so and so then, reparation for so and so It's not a new thing. As a matter of fact, the United States government ought to be used to it now. And I said, my goodness, I didn't know they'd done all those reparations. Why it took y'all so long? So number one, it's not a new thing. It's not something like the government, oh my heavens, we never thought about it. Oh, Seemed like they were handing out reparations every other day. Now why is this one so that? It's because when African American people, black people want something, then all of that built up mess comes. Now why does it come? I didn't hear any big fuss when the Japanese got reparations. I didn't hear uh, all those conservative talk show people raising pain. And I think it comes up here because people are afraid. They are afraid because on its heels has to be a new kind of meaning of the country. There has to be a way 
of coming to terms with the crazy language we have in this country. Crazy language about white people and black people and all that mess. And you have to remember they have a vested interest in that language because it was there at the beginning. And that's why that fear is there. Now, part of the reason that it is not just about the money is because if you could arrive at a certain sum and say, all right, we've got this sum and we'll figure out how to get it to the right folk. Now take it and get out of my face. In other words, I'm willing to pay you anything if with this money you don't raise the problem of what happened. If with this money you do not call for a rectification of language. If with this money you don't ask for a rectification of meaning. If with this money you don't ask for a rectification of the country. We would feel that we've got a real cheap. And so in a certain way, this one, as creative as it's going to be, is going to be rougher than the civil rights movement. Because we are now peeping their whole card. See, the civil rights movement, in many respects, was affirming we do believe in the Constitution. We do see the Constitution as a reformist doctrine. We do ultimately trust in it. And the courts. Now we still do. But we have our salt shakers with us. I have to tell you what that means. A salt shaker, in my tradition, when you going around a person who is not, who does not have a reputation for telling the truth, <laughs> you, uh, you talk to them and when they tell you certain things, to keep that which is not too true from affecting you, you, you do the salt around. See, the salt keeps that lie from bothering you. Hmm? So at this point, you see, we gonna trust the Constitution, but we got a lot of salt. And furthermore, the processes uh, Gerald had it all figured out. He said, well, well, you know, put a suit over here, you know, file a suit in Belgium, file a suit in Spain, file a suit in uh, Netherlands, file a suit in England, file a suit in France. That's all right, because they were all implicated. And 
And it's not so much filing a suit in those places against those countries, it's filing suits in those countries against this country. Now through this process, as this process is related to other processes going on in the world, we see that there are sort of um, osmosis or associative processes. I was thinking about when Pinochet uh, was in Spain. And he said, well, they can't bother me now. I'm in Spain. And all of a sudden, he said, yeah, well, we're going to file this suit from Chile. And he said, yeah, but I'm here. Hmm? So part of what's going on, both at the level of people uh, and processes such as happened to Pinochet, but also in terms of both the negative and positive meanings of what you would call globalization. The whole viability, the whole viability of the inviolable nature of the nation state is being, you know, shaken a little bit. Is the nation state that entity anymore that can be the container for peoples and their aspirations? Or are there other meanings occurring in the world that might allow us to affirm some of the groupings, meanings, forms of communities that are already taking place but because of the existence of the nation state can never have legitimacies. So I'm wondering whether or not in associative movements, uh, that is movements against World Bank, uh, movements of, of people who are willing uh, uh, to try to find uh, bad guys wherever they are, even when they're big shot bad guys, and say, look, you at least got to go to court. You can't just get away with that. I don't care if the United States like it. I don't care if all the big shots like it. You just can't do that. So there's going on in the world a certain kind of ferment already. And this new thing, or uh, extension of uh, African-American civil rights movement is fitting in finds its structure within that. And we'll probably uh, see uh, funny kinds of connections, uh, which may not be seen now, but funny kinds of connections, because it's becoming a part of, uh, of, that, of that critical and creative meaning uh, for what the world can be. I think probably, um, uh, well, let me say this. I've always had trouble with all this, this, these post things. Uh, Postmodern, post, you know. 
I finally got to a place where I said, the only post I believe in is the post office, and it doesn't work. (laughs) Because, see, the postmodern is the postmodern. Because those folks who think they're in charge of time said it was. And those folks who be, be there in charge of time said that this was the modern world before that. But when they said modern and African people were right at the heart of that modernity in those ships coming across that ocean, being one of the most stable trades of the creation of modernity, and they are left out. And you going to tell me now, you can tell me what the modern is. So it means I didn't trust you the first time. I'll use the term because that's what y'all using. But I don't have the efficacy in it. And even less so in the postmodern. I think that the terms we need to be thinking about have to be terms that arise authentically out of these new critical creative undertakings on both the thought level and the practical active level that arise out of these movements instead of thinking that we can theorize a meaning of our times without actually working to see what meanings emerge in what kind of time and in what kind of place. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Long. You see now why we revere him the way we do. And uh, it's appropriate at this time to entertain questions, Dr. Long or others who we'll sit in our midst. Yes, sir. working? Um, if it is working, yes. Of the Department of Religious that is here back there in those days when it was doing what you said, doctor, is exactly the way the department was coming along. But could you comment a little bit more on the relationship between history as they define it history and, and genealogy? Genealogy. Yes, the two Thank you. Well, I, I guess I would say I, I took up Bobby Hill's word genealogy uh, because uh, history, uh, 
as we have inherited it, as the textbooks are written and so forth, is a, uh, uh, is, is a kind of story that does not uh, uh, reveal or authentically portray uh, all of these un unsaid meanings. Um, and maybe at a certain point, we are not ready to put all of these meanings into the form that people call history yet. Uh, uh, because history in that sense is, has been created by a certain kind of group and class and so forth. Now, if you take your meanings and put them in there, that means that you are saying that is the only authentic mode of doing these things. Uh, just like they made up that genre history for their purposes, I think when you are doing your thing, you've got to figure out what is the most appropriate form in which you want to give expression to what you want to say, uh, what you want to express. Uh, and I picked up uh, the genealogy word because it allows me uh, to, to bring up what I, I got from Ashish Nandi, that I, I don't want to write something that's, that leaves other people out when they were genuinely there. But I don't want to tell a lie about it. I want to say, that's why I call it intimate enemy. That there was a lot of, lot of intimacy going on over the last 400 years, and they lied about it. And I don't want to... I don't want them to be my teachers. I don't, they don't need to teach me to lie like they lie. They are not the norm that I want to have, you see. Therefore, I'm looking around for other kinds of words because one of the reasons you don't have an inclusive history in this country is because people have lied to themselves structurally so long that when they try to do it, they don't understand they got to start brand new. Or to put it in religious terms, they have to be converted first. See? You cannot simply add it on. You cannot simply say, I'm going to put a now a chapter here on Native Americans, and now a chapter on black people, and a chapter on Chicanos, and now we got a, you know, we got a pluralistic, diverse history. That's junk. Because these other folks who are not there, they are interwoven into the time and places in very different ways. And therefore the master narrative is not the narrative of the great white conqueror. See? So that raises the issue of how do you go about expressing the temporal modality of what really went on. And so I just hung on his little word genealogy here because it might have some fruitful meanings uh, for undertaking another mode of expressiveness. Thank you. It seemed like you were on at least three different levels. Um, a theological, moral, philosophical, linguistics level, a historical level, and also a sociological, economic, political level. Um, others may choose in a number of different levels to, you know, to ask questions. 
I want to try and deal with some of the sociological, economic, and political issues with two quick comments. First of all, we talk about the lies. We don't have to look too far back to Florida this, in this past election to see that lies carry the day in very disturbing ways. And that's an issue of correcting all kinds of lies, but that's a present lie that seemed to go right on by. Um, secondly, um, in the global issue of where, and I, I was very interested the way you linked it to globalization, but in my understanding of it, which was mostly from an experience in Honolulu with the Southeastern, uh, South a East Asia Development Bank meetings, they have set up these organizations totally extra legal to any countries. They are to themselves, WTC and these things. Countries cannot even sue those groups. And the firepower that they brought into Honolulu because they had been worried about Seattle, some of these other places, they ringed the convention center with two different, two levels of barriers and outnumbered the, the protesters with police. So when you hit economics, these people bring out some firepower. Um, so that's kind of a, a overall how do we deal with this kind of reality. In terms of the connection with the civil rights movement, the Poor People's Campaign was an attempt um, to move in really the last number of years, and even, even from Montgomery on, were about um, redistribution of wealth. And particularly those last few years of Dr. King's leadership, it was ex explicitly redistribution of the wealth. And of course, we know that that led to, among other things, his assassination. So again, this is when you hit them on economic issues, the 3% or 5%, whatever that elite is, which of which most white people are not part of, of the, the superpower elite, the two families that make up George W. Bush's parentages come from some of that elite wealth. Um, so how does that connection with the civil rights movement and those goals of redistribution of the wealth towards the latter part of it connect up with this new movement that you're, you're bringing in, in to bear with it? And secondly, um, when you do a calculus and you say, we'll get our records and their records, is there a time when you anticipate that those who came across as indentured whites, and I have no idea how many of those were, but I'm sure those records are around, do you link up with those folks and say, okay, it was only for a period of time and possibly indentured blacks? Now, again, I don't know how many uh, of those folks and the duration and those, but there are records about those folks, too, who have a similar kind of reparations claim in some sense, much now, less... You misunderstand indentured servitude. Indentured okay, servitude was for the purpose of paying for the passage. Totally, okay. Five to seven years. <laughs> then they were free. Okay, that's a There's lot of no comparison with slavery. Their oh, children I, not, were not, not slaves. Not, Their I, children not were not indentured. <laughs> I, I'm not equating it. I'm not equating it. But it seems like that's a long time for, for passage. Anyway, those are the, the questions. That, 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 that the linkage with the civil rights movement in terms of the redistribution of the wealth, the, 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 the concurrence of current lies, how do you fight that? The globalization being extra legal. And, and then also linking up with others. For example, the Japanese payment was a symbolic payment. The $20,000 didn't come near to compensate <coughs> what those Japanese lost when they lost their family, homes, and farms. <coughs> so it was a symbolic payment. Anyway, those are the things that you raised in my mind. Uh, very, very raising to a different level, which, which I'm I, uh, very happy to have heard. Well, uh, uh, first of all, if you want to uh, talk about uh, the opposition and uh, people who would oppose this and how much uh, uh, power they have to oppose, of course, I mean, you shouldn't get in this unless you know that. 
uh, those people always have more power than you have to oppose. Uh, and they will, they have no, no problem using it. Uh, so that's just, that's just par for the course and the name of the game. Um, as far as the, this, the, the linkage with uh, Dr. King's poll, I think I already dealt with that. See, I, what I'm really trying to say is what I see as the difference between that uh, and what this new uh, 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 thrust is, is that they're going back to a much deeper level to talk about what is the source of human wealth. And what is the source of human wealth in the modern world and in the United States? And because, after all, it's a young country. You're only here 300 years and you got all this money. Where did it come from? And, 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 and uh, these African Americans who were brought here have only been so-called free since 1865, and then soon as that so-called freedom happened, then they turned around and told the rest of the people, y'all can terrorize them as long as y'all want, until you get tired. And then people turn around and say, I wonder what happened to them. I wonder why they don't get ahead. So that, that to me is where the real difference is. Uh, that, that here, uh, there is both a critical movement uh, to look at the past again in very hard-nosed, specific terms and out of that look to try to understand what a future could be. And I don't think uh, things of that level happen in the civil rights movement. Mr. Farnsworth? One, two. First of all, Dr. Long, I want to say that I think your words are high, highly appreciated. Uh, I want to go back to the uh, previous panel, though, if any of the teachers are still here. They mentioned things about these babies, these young children, uh, writing words about uh, they miss the my side, this, that, this, that, and I understand that. But what I need to know is their balance. And when I say balance, um, let me give you a hypothetical. Uh, if you turn on ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, you see us primarily buffooning, sports, yada, yada, yada. And we primarily don't have a balance on national television. And what I mean is that if these kids, first of all, who are teaching these kids about the my side, uh, about uh, animals within East Africa, and if they're not watching certain things, are seeing certain things, uh, I need to know who are teaching these kids. And also, there are many specials, uh, PBS specials, that uh, on Africa by youngsters, middle-aged people, oldsters, uh, very recent series that these kids should be watching. Uh, and also, I think that are they telling the kids why blacks had to drink at the water fountain? Why? people are persecuted. Because I think to leave them just with one side of it, it makes them still angry as to why others would want to treat people the way they treat people. Mm -hmm. uh, many of us don't have a clue why Jews are looked upon the way they are looked upon, as opposed to getting emotional. But once we understand the big picture, we have no problem. So along with that, I think Mr. Tony Jackson uh, really spoke for many of us in this audience. 
Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. I think he really spoke for many of us in this audience. And oftentimes, on occasion, when I'm invited out uh, in this country to speak by BSU, um, I note that when, I'm, when I arrive and I don't have that toothpaste grin, uh, I'm kind of looked that strange because of the, maybe the way I look or, or the way I've anticipated a BSU, where he thought, he seemed to think that a BSU was going in other directions. Nothing wrong with loving your, your, your fellow sister and brother, but I believe in taking care of me first. In other words, what I bring to the table. If I don't bring them to the table, other than what we see and what we hear about us, I've lost. So if you can be so kind of, if Mr. Jackson is here or any of those teachers are here, I'd like to know those things. Tony's not here. I don't know if you guys want to respond. Um, well, I think if you bring up absolutely essential points. I think that was the kind of thing I was trying to, to say when uh, I said part of this process, it's a, it's a differential process depending on who's standing up there, whether it's me or whether it's Tony or whether it's Ralph, because each of us is bringing, has to deal with who we are, what we're bringing to it. That's the number one thing we have to look at. I have to look at where I come from in terms of privilege, whatever. I have to look at that first in terms of what I'm bringing to the classroom. And that's a piece that isn't in there. It's not in the textbooks. It's not in any of that. And so if I'm going to deal with this at all, that's, that's where I have to start. And that's, that's a piece of what I think the point I was trying to make when you're dealing with complex issues in the classroom. That's part of the danger. That's part of the risk of figuring that out, of the struggle, is of starting from there and from what point of view and what counts as a resource. And um, so I would start by answering you in that way. Um, and I can't speak to is there a balance anywhere. I mean, I, we, I can only speak for where I'm coming from or where we're coming from and what we are. Um, and that is that constant search for what's going to be in the classroom in terms of how we see multiple ways of looking and the question of why is and how are absolutely essential questions. So who gets to answer the why and what counts as the why is a critical issue for the decisions we make about what resources we bring in. And if we only depend on our own resources, then that's a very limited view of what counts as how or why. I think that's the response to your question. If, if I'm going to be responsible for what I'm doing in that classroom, that little piece of writing that I'm showing you is about that much of what I have to do around that and bring into that. Does that yeah. Yeah, I'm saying I, I, I know that. I didn't do that part, but yeah. Well, first of all, I don't know because I didn't do I didn't do that part, so I can't answer that for her. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I mean, I can't speak for the person who did that. That was Iran who did that part of the presentation, and she's not here. So I can't speak for her part of what she talked about. I can speak for what I would do in my classroom. And I was trying to say that, that it would have to be those decisions about who teaches that and who brings it in, and is there a balance? That's a constant thinking that I have, the decisions I make. I'm assuming she's doing, I don't know that. Well, let me add, uh, to answer your questions, um, that's why coalitions and corporations are powerful. Uh, we are very few black faculty on this campus and the office of the president has had this outreach grant and we felt that we needed to get in and get into the school system. The other thing is that clearly the outreach funding is for those particular schools in Santa Maria and in Oaksnard and Shirley Kennedy has been making the point that we need to be in our own backyards. Um, and address the question right away. And I happen to have served as one of the assistant deans in the College of Letters and Science for two years, and I had access to those numbers. And in a particular class entering UCSB of about 4,000 students, there were 96, 37 coming from the Santa Barbara area and five students of color. Of course, they don't publicize those numbers. So our goal was to get into the school. But frankly, without the assistant of, assistance of Nicole Williams, the project would not be possible. And I turned to Judith, I said, Judith, do you have a graduate student whom I can trust? Because at the same time, we're running all those other things. We're sitting on those 18 committees. And we do recognize that we need to uh, provide the, the content the material, the historical interpretation to those teachers. And this is why we're merging with the Center for Social Justice because the, the black faculty just does not have the people power to go and train those teachers in the, in the school. So the teachers trusted us, like I said earlier. We were there and it was a beginning. And like uh, Douglas Daniels said, uh, we have to work on some of the vocabulary. We have to work on the historical material. Uh, this summer, uh, Douglas Daniels and Judith Green will be running uh, an institute for our local teachers. And the teachers that you've seen um, on the panel this morning bring 20, 30 years of experience. And they are extremely sophisticated in their approach to teaching tolerance and diversity and social justice. But we also need to provide them with that content, but we, we were not in a position to do it, but we will be doing it, and uh, the, the collaboration. Let me say, this. I think my question is not understood. Let me say, okay. this. right quick, just two points. How are these black kids learning about Africa? Number one, if they're not learning on their own, who's teaching? And whoever's teaching them, are they also teaching about space? Um, if, if we had, let me try it another way, if we had a population of black students in the Santa Barbara schools, we could answer that question differently than we're answering it now. We have a very small number of African American students in the whole of the Santa Barbara and Goleta school system.
Would anybody disagree? That's in the classroom? So we're talking about how do we bring histories, one thing we're talking about, to a whole group of students who don't share the experience, don't have the background, and haven't made the connections yet. So the teachers who shared today were attempting to make connections with a diverse group of linguistically and culturally diverse students. Many of our schools, if you haven't been watching, or if you're not local, I assume you're not, <clears throat> we had five days of articles on the segregated nature of Santa Barbara schools. Those schools are, we have schools 90% Latino, less than 1% African American, less than 1% Asian, less than maybe 1% American Indian, Native American. So our schools have a unique characteristic. How do we bring African American history, Africa, as a continent with rich resources and history to the students. That's what the Henrietta Marie is doing. That exhibit is <clears throat> attempting to connect this community with that part of a history that they don't share as a common background. The other piece of it is that the teachers who are doing that are struggling themselves, as they said, with bringing the balance, with making it accessible. That it's even in the classroom should be celebrated because right now they have people who tell them they can't teach this type of stuff and can only do two and a half hours a day of skill teaching. So the struggle we have is to raise the question of balance in the broader sense, to make certain that the teachers have access to the knowledge that you're raising, which is what we're struggling with. But then how do you also connect it with communities that aren't within that, within their history in ways that make it <clears throat> understandable. Um, what was the word that somebody used? Um, embraceable? Well, I think that's really true. I mean, I heard the, the question of there are different histories have to be embraced in relationship to this. So I kept wanting to ask the question that when we get to this, this new discourse, this new language, <clears throat> this new way of envisioning our country, what would that look like when I we get know. beyond the, the, the politics of identity that were brought in in the 60s, 70s, and 80s? My feeling is you start the process and stop worrying about exactly when you're going to get there. I think the process is what's important. Instead of thinking about the goal per se, you start the process. You start where you are and you move. This is a country of the quick fix. They always think there's some simple solution to vast social problems. All you have to do is introduce a new machine or some new device and then it's solved. But if you ask them how does government work, they understand it's more complicated. I believe, you know. First it starts off in a bill that's introduced into the legislature and then it goes into it. There's a complex process, but we don't have those kinds of processes for the things we're trying to deal with. And uh, what will it look like? Well, it'll kind of look like what your panels presented this morning. It'll kind of look like that.
more of a mosaic than a holistic uh, material thing, you know, more of a mosaic. Another question, Rebecca Hall? Doing general questions about reparations? This is it. Okay. This is the end. Okay. The finale. <laughs> this is the oh. time to ask the questions that weren't asked before. Okay. Um, I have actually um, a couple of suggestions about the next practical steps. Um, uh, my, my understanding is that this colloquium is empowered to make recommendations to the UC Regents about what the UC Regents should propose to the California Legislature. Um, and uh, if that's the case, I don't want this... I, I could see the UC Regents really easily saying, okay, we did our thing that the, you know, the Legislature told us to do and now it's over. And I want to make sure that the fire doesn't die now. And so... Um, I, I would like uh, for us to make some practical step, as you were saying, step by step <laughs> recommendations. Um, one would be to to, to, rec to recommend to the UC Regents to propose legislation um, to, for example, to prevent the destruction of any documents um, from uh, t t certain industries. For example, the tobacco industry. Um, you know, and I think of the tobacco industry, you know, in terms of people being brought here to picket and then the tobacco industry targeting African Americans specifically to, to uh, smoke it in order to feel empowered, you know. Um, and so that, you know, and I'm, I'm concerned that after this legislation about the insurance industry, the tobacco industry is going to start destroying records. Um, well, they probably already started. Yeah. Before. Yeah. But to, to try to stop that process. So that, I mean, that's one little piece. And any other types of, of industries that we could think, that we could think of. Um, the, the, the second thing is, let's say our ultimate goal that we're aiming at is a $500 trillion social bank account, right? Um, I think that what, what we need to do is form a, like a study group of Histo like historians and lawyers, and those of us are lawyers and historians, <laughs> um, to, take, to study the, the, the steps that were taken on Holocaust reparations and see, look exactly, step by step, what they did um, to make that possible. Um, and so, uh, so those are the two, two things that, that, that I wanted to say. Thank you. Anyone else? Someone who hasn't spoken? We're hearing a lot nowadays about multiculturalism. And it seems I sometimes wonder, or maybe want to comment on this, does that sometimes have the appearance of escapism, of not really approaching the real problem, or the real situation? Uh, I would much rather hear us talk about inter- Culturalism. About what? Interculturalism. Inter rather than multi. Mm -hmm. Multi simply says there's a lot of them out there. Mm -hmm. You know. 
So what do you want to comment on? I, I, that I, I'm here. not hearing good up as an echo. Oh, yeah. The first time I've been up here. Little so echo, uh, here we are. <clears throat> um, so I I'm not getting your question. Uh, okay, right. I, okay, I'm raising the question as to whether or not, so far so good, as to whether or not we are engaged in a kind of escapism. Escapism. Escapism, as we keep touting multiculturalism yeah. rather than taking steps to be sure that there is interculturalism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. Thank you. Well, I, um, my thing about multiculturalism uh, is that it may mean something, it may not mean anything. Uh, we tend to think that it, it, if something is multicultural, that it's nice. Uh, some of the evil, most evil societies in the world are multicultural societies. Uh, so that we, we tend to use these terms as if by using a term some kind of magic happens, you see. Uh, I, I think that uh, we have to watch terms like multicultural because often what's implied without a serious critical understanding of what you're talking about is as uh, the Benjamin... Um, and, um, Higginson put it, it often means for the majority population, we the people and the others. In other words, it does not mean that everybody in the country, every group in the country becomes relativized in relationship to other groups. And equal. It, it simply means that we got all this stuff and now we're going to be nicer to you funny people. Uh, so that I, 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 like I say, I carry my salt shaker around. I always carry my salt shaker around to see what are you talking about? What are you talking about? What do you really mean, you see? But we tend to get these terms and think because we use them and it's sort of be a little different from this and that and other thing that something has happened. And as far as I see, hasn't much happened. Diversity is another such term, you know. They want diversity at the mall. Makes them feel good. They want to have a diverse array of restaurants. Thai, Chinese, maybe North African. But that's where the diversity ends. Uh, Howard Dotson? I was just going to raise the question. I guess this is, this is where we begin um, or begin to address the question of uh, alternative languages. Where do these terms come from? Um, much of the stuff that's evolved in the last um, two decades or so uh, comes up or evolves in response to and in trying to, uh, to really co-opt um, the, the thrust of black studies and African-American mm -hmm, studies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so yes. the, the first yeah. thing that shows up is ethnic studies and ethnic studies yeah. starts out as um, uh, Native American, Hispanic, and Asian studies uh, as parallel kinds of um, uh, initiatives and programs. And then you look around, there's a Greek and a German and a, a few other, and, and it's everybody's ethnic, and then suddenly it's multicultural, and that's uh -huh. supposed to be comparative. Right. Uh, and, and then diversity is supposed to be a way of basically ducking out of the, uh, the issue of the black presence in, uh, uh, in, in, in business and in campuses and in other kinds of environment. So each one of these things are not things that have come out of the, um, uh, the, the struggle itself, but in response to the struggle as ways of diverting it from its, uh, its original path. Mm -hmm. and, and in so doing, you lose your focus 
yes. and lose your sense of direction and, and start uh, taking up questions that uh, take you away from your principle if you're problematic and, 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 and spread confusion. Uh, and spread confusion. And so um, I, I think if there's one thing that's come up in this conference that's been very important for me is um, how do we begin to in interrogate the language that we're using and uh, recognize the limitations of it and begin to create um, new language for talking about uh, some very old things, uh, talking about them in ways that have meaning uh, and resonance uh, in the context of um, our particular developments, and I'm talking about the developments of the diverse peoples of the, uh, of the United States, but specifically, you have to particularize before you can universal, if, if you know what I mean. If you don't know um, uh, about the particulars of two or three or four or more groups, you can't find any universals in it. You can't say that my particularity is therefore uh, the universal thing, and that's what this society has been doing. It takes that which is white and European and defines it as, as, as universal for all of humankind, and it simply is not. And so we, we just need to go back and start uh, doing that kind of, uh, if you will, linguistic archaeology and reconstructing uh, our um, uh, ways of thinking about both who we are, where we come from, and uh, what, what gives uh, definition to various phases of our evolution and development. It's such a tough question. The only way I can answer it is to say this. This generation, or let's say the generations you've heard from over the past few days, aren't going to solve the problems that we're discussing. You've got to recognize that. <laughs> I mean, I know you know that. I'm not correcting you. I'm just saying the, the issue is so difficult, so complicated, that we are not going to solve that. I think our job is to publicize it, to educate people, to get to the teachers, and to get them to raise the future leaders who can address these issues more effectively than we can. Now, I, I hope you, that's not a cop-out. It's just saying that uh, we have to focus on saving generations rather than simply assuming they're lost. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom after a while. And before I'd be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free.